Welcome to the Genesis of Startups, where we interview brilliant minds in entrepreneurship to explore what it's really like to start a business. Our guest today is Alexandra Clunas-Ross, Portfolio Manager at Artisan. Alexandra has a particular focus in climate tech companies and has worked with solar panel company 5B, wind turbine monitoring system Ping, and hospitality payment platform Liven. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. Thank you for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do with Artisan? Yeah, sure. So I'm a portfolio manager at Artesian. So it's my role to manage new investments, go through the due diligence, manage all of this, the different sectors, the diversification we have within the certain funds that I look after. So my main fund is Artesian's Clean Energy Seed Fund. So I'm making a lot of investments in climate companies, as you mentioned, but uh, I also look after a number of our other agnostic technologies funds. So we make investments in all types of technologies. And in terms of my background, I guess I actually started off my career in um, news. I worked for Sky News as a as a junior producer, I was really interested in, in broadcast journalism and quickly realized that it wasn't for me and then used my, my commerce degree and my interest in innovation to start off in the in the sort of innovation space at a corporate and then worked my way into VC. Yeah, I see. So with Artesian, what are some of the favorite startups that you've come across? Well, I guess, you know, you mentioned 5B. They're doing really well. There's a lot of press about them at the moment. They've been able to create a product that allows for the rapid deployment of solar globally. So they're they're rolling out their products globally. They're doing incredibly well. Some of the other portfolio companies, you know, Liven, you mentioned, they're a hospitality payments fintech platform. They have created a product that sits um, in the middle of payments, loyalty, and marketing. And they've been able to really create an innovative platform for consumers as well as merchants. So both of those companies are sort of standouts for me. I see. And you mentioned that your particular focus was climate tech companies. What drew you to you know this, this particular sector? Yeah, I think in terms of clean tech, I'm really drawn to the this sort of problem because never in history have we seen an issue that faces all of humanity globally. And it's a really interesting innovation opportunity because we're seeing incumbents really disrupted by these new startups and these founders in this space. And we're seeing a lot of commercialization from unis come out of come out of this problem as well as a lot of sort of government support and corporate support. So I think on the whole, I'm very passionate about solving climate change and supporting the world's reduction in CO2 emissions. And I think that the innovations that are coming out of this space are very, very interesting. And they're also wide ranging. So climate tech is not just renewable energy. It can also be recycling, waste to energy, monitoring EV technology, mobility technology. There's a wide range of different technologies in this space. So even though it might seem like quite a niche sector, it's it's definitely not. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I'm hearing is climate tech is really such a global issue. 
And because it's such a global issue, the growing support base is, is tremendous. We have support from governments, the private sector, and you know the startups that come out of this sector is just so diverse. Yeah, I think you know another example of a period of time where we've seen a great innovation push, I guess, would have been after the GFC. So mm. there was disillusionment with banks um, and the global financial markets, and we saw a real push to fintechs, and that happened globally. However, that was a little bit of a different problem, whereas now we're seeing that there's an inherent climate change issue that's going to impact everyone from, you know, how we live to our food security to there'll, there'll be mass displacements as, as we see sea levels rise. So this is an urgent problem right now. So, you know, it's similarly to what we saw happened at the end of the GFC where there was a real push. We're seeing a similar push towards climate tech, but differently, it, it's more urgent. It's not come from, you know, a global crisis. It, it's come from years and years and years of fossil fuel investment and, and our reliance on a resource that's not sustainable. So I think because of that and because of the problem and the history of the problem and the impact of the problem, there's push from all corporates, from governments, there's push in the public sector, the private sector, there's push globally for this. So we, we're seeing people wake up and want to create innovation in this space and want to focus on solving issues in this space. And therefore, it's a really interesting um, place to be investing right now. Yep, definitely. And I can imagine with all these amount of startups that are popping up, there are obviously some that are going to be more successful than others. and. What would you like to see in a startup that makes them successful, in your view? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it depends on what stage you're talking about. So we invest in companies at a very early stage. So when we're talking about what makes a company successful, we're, we're often looking at the founders and we're often looking at the founders' ability to execute as well as their previous background and their experience. So I think that would be the first thing we have a look at. Do we think this individual has the domain expertise in this space or do they have the hustle to execute on, on their product? So that would be number one. I guess secondly, again, talking about early stage sort of seed companies, we'd like to see a level of traction. You know, this might be from a pilot project or initial customer validation. We'd like to see that there is a need for this product and the people are willing to pay for it. So pay pilots are better than free pilots. Having those customers with recurring revenue um, is great. So even though the company may not be making that much revenue or um, have that much traction, we want to see those initial foundations that the company and the founder is able to push to allow it to grow. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned earlier about whether the founder has the hustle or the domain expertise. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think in terms of domain expertise, so if we're looking at a company, let's say in the fintech space, what does this individual have that allows them to develop this solution better than others? So do they have a real, have they worked in banking for the last 10 years and they have a really big, good understanding of financial markets? Or are they a really good technical developer and therefore their algorithms are going to be superior? So domain expertise could be 
you know, within the particular field that their startup is in, or it could be technical expertise. There's a lot of different competitive advantages that an individual could have, but we're really looking for that wow factor. What does this founder have that other people don't? And then I guess in terms of hustle, you know, are they willing to do what what it takes to get it done? You know, have they been able to go out there and interview lots of people? Have they been, are they hustling to raise money? Are they talking to lots of investors? You know, after you've seen hundreds and hundreds of pictures, you you get better at being able to pick up the types of people who have, you know, the skills and what it takes to be an entrepreneur because it can be, it's the most rewarding job, but it also can be very, very challenging. So they have to have, you know, an ability to bounce back from certain challenges that come their way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, regarding the domain expertise, you know, that, that's clear-cut technical expertise. Do they have the years of experience and so on? Regarding hustle, though, I'm not sure I completely see the picture because it seems quite arbitrary to see whether or not they have the hustle. Is that some sort of like intuition that you use to gauge? Yeah, I think, you know, it it, it is more of a soft soft skill rather than you know a clear cut qualitative sort of skill so we kind of look at that person's ability to it it links in with traction you know have they been able to go out there and and gain the traction and and gain the best investors it it does come from a bit of pattern recognition as a VC from seeing a number of individuals pitch to you and also seeing how those individuals if they were successful or if they weren't successful so as a VC, you're learning as well every time from founders' successes and failures and what sort of allowed them to be successful. And then you try to see those similar attributes in new founders that you're investing in as well. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just pattern recognition, seeing what was successful and who was successful in the past and seeing if it is the same here. Yeah. But I guess you also have to keep in mind, you don't want to have your own biases for mm. you know that sort of, if you're looking at that pattern recognition, well, you don't want to start to have biases around, you know, gender or minorities or ethnicities. You want to ensure that you also value diversity and, you know, every founder that we invest in is very different, but you want to sort of identify identify what are the risks and mitigants of that individual because they're really the business at the start you know the founder is the startup so once you get later stage the startup is the team and the whole group but in the early days when it's you know one or two founders they're who you're investing in them and their ideas yeah I can see that regarding domain expertise then Do you look at formal qualifications or can informal qualifications also count? So, for example, if it's a young, fresh entrepreneur, they don't have any any degrees or they don't have the 10 years of experience, but they are also really, really passionate and you can see it. Would you regard that as domain expertise? Yeah, I think, you know, you you look at a lot of different factors. So just because somebody doesn't have relevant background experience doesn't mean that they won't be able to execute. So then I would say, well, how do we validate that they're able to execute? Can we see, you know, in other areas of their life where they've been able to execute or in their early validation, have we seen that they've actually got 10 customers? So, you know, we've got that validation from their experience gaining traction in those customers or is it in their university or in their um, extracurricular activities so you don't have to have worked 
10 years in the domain that you want to then do a startup in. But you have to show that you have an ability to execute and that, you know, you have to prove why you'd be a good founder. It can't just be, I think I'm a good founder because I am. Mm, Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. It's just you're, you're constantly seeking the validation and the ability to execute. And that's what's important, not the formal qualifications and the like. Yeah. And I think as well, it gets easier as the companies get larger because there's more data to look at. So, you know, typically I'm actually just talking very, very early stage startups. Whereas when you look at series A and series B, those companies have more data, have more ability to prove their model, prove their product and just focus on growth. So at each stage of a company, you need to really be looking at different things. And that's why often, you know, VCs focus on early stage or they focus on late stage, you know, a lot of VCs in Australia are probably full stack because there's not that many. But in the US, we typically see that companies have a bit of a stage focus. Mm, I see. So Ali, one of your biggest recommendations for anyone with a startup is to have a deep understanding of the problem that they are solving. And could you elaborate on this? Yeah, I think any founder needs to understand their customer deeply. They need to understand all the pain points that that customer has, whether or not it's an individual or a corporate or a government. They need to really have sort of looked at the problem from multiple viewpoints. They should have interviewed a number of customers so that they have a real inherent understanding of all the pain points. Because I think that that understanding of your customer leads you to create the best solution and the best product to solve that issue. So that's what I mean by that, you know, go out there, talk to your customers and then talk to more customers. You know, every customer is going to have a slightly different pain point. So you need to understand how those all work together. And often, you know, sometimes people hypothesize that there's a problem and there might not really be a problem. So going out and doing the work and doing the market research is very important to ensure that you're not wasting time creating a product which doesn't actually solve any problem. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you're you're creating a solution for a problem, not creating a, a, a problem for a solution that you've built. Yeah, exactly. Your, the background in startups is, or, or the basis of startups is to solve a problem. Use technology to solve a problem. If there is no problem, you're just creating a technology for no reason. So, you know, you might be enhancing another technology, that could be good. But I think having that real, really clear problem allows you to ensure that you've got product market fit in those first instances. Yeah, definitely. Could you tell me a bit more about the idea that all stakeholders have a slightly different view of what the problem is, but it's your job as a founder to figure out how they all fit together. And what did you mean by that? So I think when you're looking at a problem in general, if it's depending on if it's firstly you need to understand who is the customer. Is it an individual? Is your pro, is your problem relating to a direct to consumer, or is it p- focused on a corporate problem? I think each each individual or each corporate might interact with the problem in a different way, but you need to identify 
how to create a solution that holistically solves it. I guess, Mm. for example, something like Afterpay, if we look at that, there's a problem for the merchant and there's a problem for the user. So these are two different problems, but how has Afterpay created a solution that allows both problems to be solved? So, you know, there might be different types of problems and there can be a similar solution um, for both problems. So, you know, having a real understanding of all the different impacts of that problem and who it impacts is important. Hmm. Yep, I, I see what you mean, because if you as a founder are not able to identify all the stakeholders that could potentially be affected. There, there could be market, a segment of the market that you're just missing out on. Exactly, exactly. And would you say then it's just purely a, a numbers game then to figure out all the different views of the market? You just need to interview as many people as possible. I mean, I think you need to interview all types of customers. So make sure you've got a a diverse range of your customer base. You know, I don't think you need to go out and interview 400 people. I think once you can see that there's some level of pattern recognition, you know, you're starting to see that the customers are saying similar things, you've kind of identified what the problem really is. And then it's really going out, developing your MVP and seeing if you can sell it, seeing if there's there's a big difference between people saying, yeah, that is a problem and yeah, I might use that and actually using it. So, you know, you have to identify how the level of intensity of that problem to ensure that the that the user really wants to to sort of use the product. Yeah, I see. So it's just it doesn't necessarily have to be a, an interview pool of hundreds and hundreds of people, but just can you see an intense pattern among the people that you've been interviewing and if they're all the same? Yeah, exactly. There's no secret number to this. It, it's really there's levels of intuition for you as a founder to identify when you think you have enough information to start working on the product and the MVP. And, you know, when you start developing the MVP, then you need to go back out to market and test that again. So there's a lot of initial sort of tweaking. What you'll end up with is not what you think you'll, you, you initially were going to start with in terms of your product because you're always, you should always be sort of listening to the market and tweaking accordingly. Yeah, I can see just based on our conversation alone that how there's such an allure for entrepreneurship because it's so exciting and new. But then at the same time, there, there are people that just, you know, stray so far away because there's never any concrete answers here. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you do get to a later stage, there are more concrete answers, you know, in terms Mm. of what sort of revenue you should be generating or what sort of growth you should have for your type of business, as well as, you know, what range of funding you would be able to get from the market and things like that. It does become clearer as as you go on. But in the initial phases, it's all about iteration, just reiterating your product, reiterating your solution to ensure that you have clear product market fit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was just going to mention that actually, because we are delving into, you know, a slight discussion on product market fit. Mm -hmm. And from your perspective, how can you measure product market fit? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, again, I think it depends when we're looking at an investment on how much that company is raising. So if they want to raise $5 million, 
we would assume that they have product market fit and we can see <laughs> growth in revenue. So typically we're talking about product market fit in the very early stages. It might be their first round. And I typically see that validated through, through customer traction. You know, do they have customers? Have they signed on customers? Do they at least have pilots with customers? And then often we'll speak not often, we will speak to the customers and identify, you know, if this is a real problem for them or if they're really enjoying the product or, you know, if they've tried other products in this space because there's always competitors. So really identifying if there is a need and if people want to use it. And that's, that's really how we work out if there's product market fit. But I would just say early customer validation, early customer traction. I see. And again, is there a magic number, you reckon? (laughs) No. You know, the more that you have, the more that you can raise at a high valuation. So it's not necessarily a magic number, but I would say for any entrepreneur to go out there and try and get as many customers as possible before you need to raise so that it's easier to do so. People won't question your product market fit as much if you have more customers. Yeah. And From your perspective, you know, working in a VC, what's a common myth that you want to debunk that the general public has? Oh, a myth to debunk. I think there's a myth around VC funding, saying it's really hard to raise VC funding. I think there's a lot of funding out there for companies that have that traction in the early stage. And I think often companies that struggle to raise. It might be because they're a little early and they haven't sort of gone out and hustled to get that customer validation. And I think often, you know, people who can't raise, there's a lot of loud voices in that space. So then it becomes, you know, it's really hard to raise VC money. But I think if you're at the right stage, I think as well for founders, if you're going to raise money from a VC, go and understand what their mandate is. You know, what is their fund looking at? Do they only focus on fintech or do they only focus on Series A? You know, understanding what the mandate of the fund that you're looking to raise from is, is very important so that you can frame your pitch in the right way. And also you don't waste time going to a series B fund when you're only raising an angel round. So, Hmm. you know, having clear, um, understanding of what, what each fund is looking for, because everyone's looking for something different. I think that's really important. Yeah. And and that makes sense. You, You just see a VC as another customer because you have to understand what their pain points are and what they're looking for. And I guess the myth is just thinking that VC funding or attaining VC funding is hard, but it's really just understanding what is it the VC is looking for. Yeah, it's understanding what the VC is looking for and making that sh- you, sure you have enough validation to prove out your hypothesis in the early stages. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the Genesis of Startups today, Ali. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. It was incredibly valuable having you talk about what defines a successful startup in the eyes of a VC and also delving into product market fit and having a deep understanding of the problem you are solving. To our audience, if you'd like to learn more about Ali or about the genesis of startups, feel free to drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook or Twitter. Until next time.